How are you with challenges? I really believe this morning, this lesson in God's Word will be a challenge for all of us. Um, It won't be easy for anyone. And it's because we live on this earth. And we're surrounded by, as the world views it, treasures. Challenges aren't bad. I was on vacation last year, year before, and I couldn't remember when. It doesn't matter. But I was with my lovely wife and with another couple. And um, sometimes when we're on vacation, um, I hike. Do you get that singular? I hike. And we were at this waterfalls in Georgia, and I really wanted to get to the top, right? Because I like, I, I, I love and, and I appreciate the perspective of the falls from the bottom, but I want to reach out and touch, right? And so there's, at this falls, I don't remember where it was in Georgia, there's about 250 plus steps up to the falls, And I could get no one to go with me. But that's okay. So I walked up those 250 plus steps. And I get to the landing area. And you couldn't see a thing. In fact, what you could see is I could see below. And I could still see the falls which were above me. But only because I knew they were above me. I knew the tree line was there and that's where they were, but I thought I was there. I took that challenge, right? I'm going to climb those 250 plus steps. And I made it there and I was greatly disappointed because there were more steps to go. But the problem was that from that particular point, you couldn't get to those steps. And so you know what I had to do? I had to go back down those stinking steps to the bottom. And then I found out later that you could just drive. (laughs) To the point where you walked a little bit and you could reach out and touch. There's times in my life where I really like challenges. And there's times in my life where I really struggle with them. And I think this morning, I'm not sure how it will be for you. But in thinking in terms of having a view toward eternal things may be for some of us a challenge. Um, Living in light of eternity. There was a, a tombstone and on this tombstone was written, I lived, I died, that's it. I lived, I died, that's it. Um, I've got news for you guys. You live, you die, but that's not it. Did you know that every single person's going to live eternally? Some are going to live eternally in the presence of the Lord, and some are going to live eternally away from the presence of the Lord. And so, 
I hope that we have a mind that, that says we're living for eternal things. Certainly that's where Peter's mind was as he's talking to these believers. He wants the people of the Lord to have a view towards eternity. Now remember, in the context of 2 Peter, he's been made aware of the fact that his death is imminent. Well, if you're lying on a bed and you know you're about to die, you are thinking about something. Well, for Peter, obviously his death was imminent. And so he's thinking about these eternal things because it's interesting that his challenge is really not for himself. He he uses the personal pronoun, as we're going to see in a minute, you. So Peter already has this mind toward eternal things. And um, so he's challenging his readers to that. And it's interesting that in his challenge toward eternal things, um, he... The challenge is based on how we live right now. How are we living right now? And so as you look in verse 11 of 2 Peter, I do not have my clicker. Look at verse 11 of of 2 Peter chapter 3. All right, he's talking to the people of the Lord, and this is what he says to them. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What's he talking about? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That there's coming a time when the heavens and earth are going to be destroyed. He mentions that in verse 7. He He mentions it again in verse 10. He mentions it again in verse 12. And so he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What way? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, he says, look at this. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So he meets them where they live, you know, the life that they live each day. And he says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That is not a question. That's an exclamation. He's saying, hey, look, since you know all this, since you know it's going to be destroyed, the heavens and the earth, what sort of people ought you to be? Well, we ought to be people that are focusing on eternal things and giving attention to the way we live now. Now, I want to show you something very interesting. This word here, um, ought, I highlighted that for a reason. You could skip over that word, but that's a very important word here in this sentence. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That word ought there means obligated. (laughs) You know, you're obligated to. The idea is that you have a debt right? You have a debt. You're obligated to. Paul used the same term in in Romans chapter 1 where he says he's obligated to the Jews and to the Greeks. There's obligation. Guys, listen, the obligation to live holy and godly is because we love God and we're thankful for our salvation. That's why we live holy and that's why we live godly. 
We do that because of we recognize what the Lord has done for us. When was the last time you wrote out your testimony? This is what the Lord has done for me. Wouldn't that be interesting? Not only did he save you, but he set you apart. And all these things have happened in your life as a result of the love of the Lord. And so that's a very um, interesting word there. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And you'll notice in your outline, um, some translations have the word behavior. So he deals with their behavior. Knowing that all these things are going to be destroyed, how should you behave? And he says, in verse 11, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? So we dealt with a little bit of that last time together. That word behavior emphasizes being set apart. The believers to be set apart in their behavior, an issue that was certainly addressed as we talked about last time in Peter's first letter to them. You remember in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says, as obedient children, right? Um, so they needed to live according to um, their identity. They were different. They're in Christ. They needed to live separate. And he tells them that in, in his first letter to them, as obedient children, do not be conformed, he says, to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. All right, and so Peter concentrates on their behavior. He says you're to be holy in your conduct. I like what Stephen Cole says. He says holy conduct uh, is, that con- is conduct that is distinct from this evil world in which we live. Right, that's a good statement. It's conduct separate from the world in which we live. You know, you think about um, just one particular area. This is not in my notes, but if you think about what's one thing that we could be distinct, what's one way we could be distinct from the world? Well, we're going to talk about three of them, but you know, one of the ways that we can be distinct from the world in which we live today is to value truth. Because our world doesn't care a whole lot about truth. In fact, they're putting people on pedestals who lie. And we look at it and we go, what's wrong? We know what's wrong, don't we? We know what's wrong. People who do not have the Spirit of God residing in them are going to be living for themselves. Um, And so... We need to value truth. It needs to be something we hold in high regard. And we need to think on and dwell on and meditate on. But I pointed out last time that in terms of our behavior, uh, we might want to think about three areas. Being set apart, number one, in our thoughts. In our thoughts. This deals with the mind. So then the question, the operative question is, what are we putting in our mind? When I was growing up, I didn't think about that a whole lot. When I was a teenager, I didn't necessarily think about what I was putting in my mind. Every once in a while, I was challenged on a Wednesday or a Sunday to think about it. But it's something we should give daily attention to. We'll look at the verse in just a second. We need to be set apart in our words. And we'll look at this one in a minute as well. Our speech, the things that we say. Um, And then thirdly, in our actions. Let me show you these three verses. Number one, set apart in our thoughts. Philippians chapter 4, 
verse 8, Paul says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, what does he say there to do? Dwell on these things. That word dwell is an interesting word in the New Testament. It means to take up residence. The idea is find your home in these things. Find yourself meditating on these things. Um, You know, in the context of that passage in Philippians 4, Peter's talking about just before that the issue of anxiety. What better way to deal with anxiety than to focus on these things, right? Because when you're dealing with anxiety, where's the focus? Mm, On self. But Paul tells these believers, hey, focus on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. And then uh, we talk here about the tongue, that we can be set apart in our words, our speech. And last time... We looked at Ephesians 4, verse 29, but as we're looking at that, I want you to turn to the book of James, and I want to show you something. James chapter 3. Notice what it says here, though, in Ephesians 4, 29. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word unwholesome, that word there, remember last time we talked about that word, we said it means rotten. Let no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Guys, we know that the tongue can be a problem, right? One of the ways, one of the issues that we need to think about in personal holiness is our tongue. You know, it's, it's not just what we say, but how we say it. Um, I, Paul was concerned about that in his writings, as you're defending the gospel. You know, he talks a lot about grace, being graceful, right? I mean, I, I'm one of those, if the Bible says it, I'm putting my stamp there. But I need to be, right, loving in how I present that. Well, The tongue can get you in trouble. James says it. He spends a good bit of time talking about it. So I just thought it would be a good reminder for us. Look at this. James chapter 3 verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So that's the context. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able to bridle the whole body as well. Well, there are no, are no perfect men. Now, if we put the bits into horses, the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. I remember the first time I rode a horse, I was in Colorado years ago. I was a teenager. And I got on that big old horse and I was scared to death. But it's amazing what you can do with those reins. Just pull that baby, jerk it left, right. It's awesome. Um, and so the Bible says here, 
you put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us. He says we direct their entire body as well. Think about how big that animal is. Verse 4. Look at the ships also. They are so great and are driven by strong winds. They're still directed by a very small rudder. Wherever, uh, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. That's mind-boggling as well. When you think about it, those are pretty drastic, right? Examples. But we know they're true. And so James says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Think about how small your tongue is in comparison to the rest of your body. Notice he says, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members, verse 6 says, as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. Notice the way James describes this. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. How many times have you said something or I've said something and immediately when we've said it, man, we just want to reach out and grab those words. Once it's said, it's said. And that's why I kind of, you know, I don't know if the word harp would be the right word, harp on, but I just do have a tendency to remind us that what we put out there on Facebook is kind of like the same thing. Because once you push the button, it's over. And somebody's going to see it. Right? And so we have to be careful with the things that we say. I got, I, listen, I have illustration after illustration of times this tongue has been in trouble. And one time it was in public. And I was playing basketball in college. And I was playing over at Alliance. It used to be a church there on uh, Highway 31. And it was a summer league. And there was a guy on my team that wasn't passing the ball. And we're running back down the court, and he's like, get me the ball. Mm. And so in my younger days, when I wasn't evidencing maturity, I turned around, I jumped up, and I just got right in his face. He's six foot three. So I wasn't really right in his face. It was more like his chest. (laughs) And I said, I'm tired of you telling me what to do. And the whole gym heard it. Couldn't hear a pin drop. Poor testimony. Poor testimony. This tongue has had its fair share of problems in life. And most of them I've created myself. It is dangerous. We have to be careful. Notice what he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And I don't think I'd be far off to say we've probably all struggled with that a time or two in our lives. He's, he says, notice this word he uses. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening fresh and bitter water? Answer, no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So our words matter. We need to be careful. We need to let the Spirit of God guide us. Part of that holy conduct, part of that behavior is our tongue. So it's our mind, it's our tongue, and it's our actions. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed. I really like the next phrase. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So whatever we're doing, whether it's our words or our actions, we're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he emphasizes their behavior and being set apart. And these are three areas certainly that you and I can learn from. But then he also tells us here in Second Peter, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct, separate conduct, set apart from the world. And then he says, and godliness. Um, in your outline, I have the word worship. Because he wanted his, the people to give attention to their behavior, but also worship. It's interesting that that word God, godliness there, um, one of the definitions is worship. It also means to be in awe of, to be reverent. So as we think about worship and we think about reverence and we think about awe, we think about who? The Lord. So a godly person is focused on the Lord. And so he says here, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The word godliness means to worship well. It describes a person who is committed to pleasing God in all aspects of life. You know, it makes me think of how I get up each day. You know, a lot happens from the time that you get up in the morning to the time you leave home. Is that true? Absolutely. And what I think about is I think about how is my course going to be set that day? And there are times when I've walked out that door and the course is about that and when that happens my day is rough but when I have that focus on the Lord and giving reverence to him and focusing on worshiping him my days no matter what comes in that day it's just fine because I remember the Lord and I remember that he's in control of all things and so the word godliness means to worship well and describes a person who is committed to pleasing God in all aspects of life. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, the eagle-eyed, argus-eyed world observes everything we do. Did you know that? Everything we do, especially if they know you're a believer, 
They're watching everything you do. Um, because I'm a competitive person, which I know, I don't know if you knew that. But I'm a competitive person. And one of the big challenges for me is when I'm in a public arena and a game's going on. I have to remember, the Lord's had to remind me over the years. Goodness, over and over. Hey, Thad, you're in a public arena. You're in a public arena. You are representing me. My boys, my middle son and my youngest son played baseball in high school. And I always used to view the ballpark as another congregation of people. And you know what they were doing? Watching. And do you know what? It took a few, I guess it was probably the, It might have been two years into it before most of those families knew what I did. In fact, you know how it happened? I remember the day it happened. I had a funeral. And um, there wasn't enough time to go home and change. And so I'm dressed in a suit, right? And I'm going to the ballpark and I take the coat off, but I'm walking in to the park, and I'll never forget it, this man walked up and stood right beside me and said, hey, Thad, how come you're so dressed up? I said, well, I had something to do today. He's like, well, what do you do? I never even asked you. What do you do anyway? I said, I'm a pastor. And you know what they always say? You're a pastor? <laughs> they do. I guess some guys look like it. I probably don't, I guess. You're a pastor? You know, this same fellow that said, are you a pastor? Came to me about a year later and we were in Gardendale at a baseball game. And he walks up to me and says, hey, Thad, I got a question for you. I'm like, well, all right. And he said, hey, could you help me with some books on how to study the word? You see, I don't know how it happens for you. I'm sure being out there, you run into all types of folks. So every one of us needs to have the mind that, hey, we're in public and we need to be living for Christ in public. Easier to do when we're in these walls. Harder to do when we're outside. <laughs> because, boy, we battle that flesh every day, don't we? And that flesh is ugly. Notice what he says. The world observes everything we do and sharp critics are upon us. He says, let us live the life of Christ in public. Let us take care that we exhibit or display our master and not ourselves so that we can say, it is no longer I that live but Christ that lives in me. You know, I was thinking about an example, you know, I was praying, Lord, give me an example for this. It wasn't hard. I want you to go in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. What does it mean that we would be so committed to pleasing God? How does that look? The book of Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to go there. Hebrews chapter 11. We have an example of one who worshipped well. <laughs> 
He worshiped well and he pleased the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that's his testimony when he was here on earth. Um, I know you're all probably familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, the hall of faith as some call it, right? Um, And in this hall of faith, I want you to know something, guys. These are regular people who did remarkable things because of the Lord. Verse 5 says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And the Bible says, And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained, look at that, he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was what? Say it out loud. Pleasing to who? He had the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So I got to thinking about that, and I'm like, that's a great testimony to have. You know, his witness is that he was pleasing to God, but, but is there something we can learn? How did that happen? Well, I did some more reading. If you go back to the book of Genesis, and I want you to turn there, but if you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 5, you're going to see the key to Enoch pleasing God. Because twice... In chapter 5, verses 22 and 24, the Bible says that Enoch did what? He walked with God. And so in people's minds, they're like, oh yeah, he's strolling along with God. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. And verse 6 of Hebrews tells us about it. Look at this. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And notice what it says. And without what? Faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So he had just told us in verse 5 that Enoch had the witness or the testimony that he was pleasing to God. Well, what's pleasing to God? Verse 6. What is? Faith is pleasing to God. In fact, the author says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So when I think about Genesis chapter 5 and verses 22 and 24, that helps me. How did Enoch please God? He walked with God. By faith, by faith, trusting him by faith every day. You know, there's words of wisdom given to us in the book of Proverbs. And here's the the action part of that faith. You know the verses. But what does it say to us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Trust in who? The Lord. With what? All your heart. So you have a man here, Enoch, who is pleasing to the Lord and he's walking by faith, trusting him. 
trust in the Lord. The author of Proverbs says, with all your heart, lean not on what? Your own understanding. Ugh. Wish he wouldn't have put that in there. Right? That's what we're thinking. Because the reality is that in my life, in your life, the temptation is to do what? Lean on our own understanding. And I believe the greatest challenge is to trust the Lord in the small things. Trusting Him in the big things, well, we're, gonna, well, we're really going to focus on that. But trusting Him in the small things. Trusting Him when things are good. Not when things are just bad, but when things are good. He's the same God. So what pleases the Lord? Faith. Faith does. And the Bible tells us here that Enoch was an example of a man who worshipped well. He had a reverence. He had an awe for the Lord. And he was pleasing to him. His focus, it's like I read one guy said, his focus every day was the Lord. Well, that's a lot to think about, isn't it? Because when we think about our life, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I living with a view toward eternity? And if I am, how's the behavior in my life? Does it look like that? And then how is my worship or godliness, as Peter refers to it? I wanted to leave you with three things this morning and... um, What do we do with this? Well, in the context of the passage, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Peter in chapter 3, verses uh, 8 and 9, is talking about, hey, look, this is why the Lord's delayed in his coming. And some of that had to do with the long suffering of the Lord. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, in reference to his coming, but is patient. Towards you, long suffering towards you, not wishing or desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so, as we look at that and we apply that, what do we do with that truth? Well, knowing the mercy or the long suffering of the Lord, we witness. And we all have the responsibility to witness. And I want us, I want us to be reminded of how that works. I want you to go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to be reminded, and it's a good reminder for me as well, how does that work? Right? We know we've been given the command to witness, and hopefully we obey that command. But how does this whole thing work anyway? What's our responsibility? In chapter 3, verse 1, of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, indeed even now you are not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? 
What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants. That's who they are. Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And then notice what he says here. I planted and Apollos watered. But, now look at all of it's important. I planted, Apollos watered. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. We plant seeds, seeds are watered, but notice he says, but who was causing the growth? God. God does it. God causes the growth. Listen to me. We have the gospel and we present the gospel. And someone comes along and waters that. But God's the one that causes the growth. I can't save anyone. But I have the responsibility to share the gospel with everyone. That's my responsibility. But it's the Lord that does the work, according to Paul here, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Apollos watered personal responsibility of the believer, we all have the responsibility to witness. But God was causing the growth. So, knowing the long-suffering of the Lord, we witness. And guys, can I tell you, don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Don't go, well, they're never going to be saved. You know, one of the greatest testimonies that I ever heard of someone coming to Christ is Teresa's grandfather on her dad's side. Every, for years, I don't remember how long Mima and Papa, I forget his name, how long they were married, 60-something years, just guessing, but around that. And her faithfulness every Sunday to go to church, every Sunday, every Sunday. She knew the Lord. She had a personal relationship with the Lord. She was an awesome lady. She, she worked up at Camp Ponderosa. She just gave her life. She was a servant of the Lord. And all those years, she prayed for her husband that he'd come to know the Lord. And do you know what? He was saved when he was 90 years old. 90. I love that. Because the tendency is, well, percentages say, eh, let God do the work, guys. They may be 30, 50, 70, 90, 100, I don't know. But I know, I don't care if they're 30, 50, 70, 90, or 100, I still have the same responsibility, just like the disciples, to go make disciples. I have that responsibility. And, I, I, and the miracle is God doing the work. He's the one that does it. Well, secondly, what do we do with this? I really like this. Knowing that complete destruction is coming, there should be a commitment to live, Philippians 1, 20 and 21. And so since we're so close to that, please go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. 21 and 22. It'd be good if we had this mind that Paul had for to me, and he doesn't say for to you or for to us. He says for to me, to live is what? It's Christ. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. 
To live is not pro football or college football or dancing or anything else. For the believer to live is what? Christ. To die is gain? To die, let's read that again, make sure you got that right. To live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. Gain. If you went out on the street and you said to someone, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What, what are you talking about? You know, Tony Evans says that heaven's a promotion, not a demotion. Uh, but I tell you what, over the years, you're like, as you look back and you go, man, it certainly isn't treated like that a lot. Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. But notice what he says. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean sitting back and relaxing. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, this will mean fruitful labor. My friends, listen to me. If you're a believer in Christ and you're living the Christian life, I hope you've come to know by now that the Christian life is labor. It's labor. He says, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which one to choose. So when we think about Eternity, new heavens, new earth. What's coming down the road? We know the destruction that's going to take place. We say, Lord, help me by your grace and by your spirit to live like Paul did. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, some look at that statement and go, man, Paul's a pretty arrogant dude. No, no, I believe Paul just had the right focus. I believe he had the right focus. I believe he understood that, hey, one day the Lord is coming. And one day all these things are going to take place from the tribulation period to the millennial kingdom to new heavens and a new earth and all everything that man values, all his works, everything is going to be burned up. It isn't going to matter. It's interesting that Paul used, or Peter uses that word works there in his description of what's going to be destroyed. He says in, in 2 Peter 3.10, he says, the earth and its works, all those things, everything that man is so proud of, hey, look at what I did, burned up. It's coming. The day is coming. How will we live in light of that day? Well, let me leave you with one more. We'll get into this when we cover the next section. Knowing the promise of the Lord, we should look for his return. Three times in this section, he says, look for, look for, look for. Look for what? Look for the Lord. He's coming. Look for this judgment. It's coming. Look for the new heavens and new earth. It's coming. So, knowing the promise of the Lord, we should anticipate His return. I know you've heard of the hymnist Fanny Crosby, right? Any, how many of you have heard of the hymn, hymnist Fanny Crosby? The famous blind hymnist Fanny Crosby attended a midweek service, prayer meeting, in 1891. 
at which uh, Dr. Howard Crosby spoke from the 23rd Psalm. Later that week, Fanny was stunned when Dr. Crosby suddenly died. And pondering the suddenness of death, she asked herself, I wonder what my first impression of heaven will be. A moment later, she answered her own question by saying, Why my eyes will be opened and I will see my Savior face to face. A few days later, she wrote one of her most famous hymns. Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king, and I shall see him face to face. And I love this next section. And tell the story saved by grace and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace well it certainly wasn't an accident as we know that Peter used the word ought as believers were obligated to the one that bought us that paid for us he owns us let's live with a perspective toward eternity. Let's pray together. Lord, as, as we look at this section, Peter is so focused on the sheep that he is shepherding. He wants them to grow, as we saw in chapter 1. He wants them to be aware of the fact that there are many out there who are false teachers. In chapter 2, that's what his focus is on. And when you come to chapter 3, his focus is on what's coming and on who's coming. And Lord, while we know from your word that the heavens and earth will be destroyed, I just think, okay, I know that. I believe that because that's what your word says. But Lord, I'm like Paul. I long for your return. For me. For the church. As I was listening to someone this week as they were talking about the little phrase in Christ. The ones that will be raptured will be the ones that are in Christ. Over 120 times that little phrase is used to describe your church. And Lord, so one day you're coming for your church and I pray that everyone in this room is ready for that. Because nothing else has to happen for you to come. And it can be at any moment. And I pray that we're ready. And as we'll see next time, how's he going to find us? How's he going to find us? And Lord, I pray that you would help us because one of the challenges in that is that um, he would find us focusing on him and eternal things and not the things of this world. And every one of us in this room, Lord, as you know, because you're omniscient, you know all things. You know our struggle. And you know that struggle's daily, it's real. And I pray that as we live life every day, whether we're at work or play, 
that in public we would demonstrate Jesus Christ in our lives and that we would not be ashamed and that we would stand on your truth and that we would share the gospel because there are so many that are out there today that are lost and are dying. Lord, they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And can I thank you in closing, but I just want to thank you for those people in my life who were faithful to share the gospel with me. And I want to thank you so much that while they planted and watered, Lord, as I look back, I'm able to see, Lord, you're the one that was causing that growth. The Spirit of God convicted me of my sin and my need for the Savior who is Christ. And so I pray that if anyone in this room does not know you today, Lord, that the scales would be removed and they would be able to see the need that they have for the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these things I pray in his precious name. Amen. Guys, this, uh, this last song we're going to do, in my mind, is about resting in the Lord. That's something I struggle with very, very often. And um, a few weeks ago, I was sharing with a friend about that struggle with anxiety and wanting to be in control of things. And that friend reminded me, he said, Kevin, um, you're, in, you're in the storms. You're in a stormy season of life. And he said, Kevin, uh, Jesus is in the boat with you, and Jesus is asleep. You guys remember that passage, right? When the storms stirred up, and, and the disciples were terrified for their very life, and the Savior and Creator of the world was asleep. And after they woke him up, um, he spoke about how small their faith was. And so this next song, just think about... Think about uh, how we can rest in the Lord. And the world is looking for rest, right? It's looking, looking in all the wrong places. Um, by God's grace, we found it. And we get to put that on display. Let's all stand up as we close out our service this morning. Feel and feel.
passion to rise my soul.